Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. The scripture for today is Matthew 4, 23 to 25th, and 5th, 1 to 4th. And I will be reading in Spanish. Y recorrió Jesús toda Galilea, enseñando en las sinagogas de ellos, y predicando el Evangelio del Reino, y sanando toda enfermedad y toda dolencia en el pueblo. Y se difundió su fama por toda Siria, y le trajeron todos los que tenían dolencias, los afligidos por diversas enfermedades y tormentos, los endemoniados, lunáticos y paralíticos, y los sanó. Y le siguió mucha gente de Galilea, de Decápolis, de Jerusalén, de Judea y del otro lado del Jordán. Viendo la multitud, subió al monte y sentándose, vinieron a él sus discípulos. Y abriendo su boca le enseñaba diciendo, Bienaventurados los pobres en espíritu, porque de ellos es el reino de los cielos. Bienaventurados los que lloran, porque ellos recibirán consolación. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, John Stott, who's a renowned theologian, uh, when he was approaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is what part of what you just heard read, uh, he said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the sermon is probably the most known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another renowned pastor and teacher and theologian, argued that to be a Christian is to embody the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Esau Macaulay, a New Testament scholar, wrote a book called Reading While Black. And in that book, he said this about the same sermon, the mountain location of this sermon. Echoes the giving of the law at Sinai. Just as the law was directed toward life in the promised land, Jesus' words are directed toward life in God's kingdom. Jesus is the greater Moses because he does not simply repeat what he hears from God. He speaks on his own accord as the divine king. If there is a place for the Christian to turn to, uh, for uh, a way to witness a world divided, witness to a world divided and torn by sin, this is it, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, these are really big words. These are really big claims, big expectations about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in so many words, what we have before us and what we just heard read, partial of what we heard, is that the Sermon on the Mount is the king proclaiming the character of his kingdom to, uh, to those who are in his kingdom about how they ought to live in order to make his kingdom visible in this world. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. And yet though this sermon is that important, in the words of Stott, it's the closest thing that we have of Jesus' own manifesto, even though it's of that great importance as noted, it's also too often one of the least understood sermons in the scriptures. Now today, we continue our series, Thy Kingdom Come, looking at, for the next 19 weeks or so, this sermon. 
And we're going to spend that much time going through the sermon because if these teachers and these scholars, if what they say about the sermon is true, then we need to take this sermon very seriously and intentionally look at what Jesus is commanding and teaching in this sermon. And so if you're here, if you are a Christian, this sermon reveals Jesus' sermon, not my sermon. This sermon reveals to us what it means to be a Christian. And so as a result, we need to compare our lives to it. If you're not a Christian, and Macaulay's words, Esau Macaulay's words are true, that Jesus really is this divine king, he is God and king. If those words are true, then these words, these sermons, this sermon has a lot to say to you as well, to maybe consider what it means to trust Jesus as being this divine king. Now for the next six weeks, just really quick, we're going to take a look at the Beatitudes, which uh, we just uh, heard read a moment ago. We'll be taking a look, you know, uh, the Beatitudes, I guess you could call those the values of the kingdom. Uh, And then we're going to spend the subsequent weeks looking at what we'll call the ethics of the kingdom, uh, all of which together in the words of Stott show us what Jesus was trying to utter in this manifesto. And today, all that to say, today, we're going to start exactly where Jesus started, by looking at the first two Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically those being, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn. Okay, let's look at, let's consider those two, uh, those two Beatitudes by considering three things. We're going to take a look at the context for blessing, the pathway to blessing, and finally the fulfillment of blessing. Okay, so first, the context of blessing. Uh, This sermon of Jesus, uh, it's really the kind of the beginning. It's at the very beginning of his public ministry. Just quickly. So in chapter three, we see John the Baptist uh, making way for Jesus, calling people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then in the same chapter, what we see is Jesus, he's baptized by John the Baptist as a way of validating the message of John the Baptist, which was that the kingdom of God had come near. And so Jesus is baptized to not only validate, but also to identify with his people. Kind of a total side thing, but it's one of the things that we believe about baptism, is that in baptism, Jesus, by his spirit, is present with us. But then in chapter 4, we have Jesus tempted in the wilderness, if you remember that story. There, we, we see that Jesus, he, of course, as he begins, he's about to begin his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan. In essence, I, that could be a whole sermon unto itself, but in essence, the temptation of Jesus there uh, in the wilderness is to show the way in which Jesus is able to do what Adam in the garden could not do. So Adam in the garden did not resist temptation. Jesus in the wilderness for our sake, resists temptation. So all of this is happening, now leading up to uh, the end of chapter 4, where Jesus now repeats the words of John the Baptist by proclaiming what his message was. Jesus' message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now here's why all of that matters. The reason why I bring up the baptism and the temptation. In baptism and in temptation, Jesus is identifying with his people. Yet he shows the extent to which his presence is ushering in a new era now that the kingdom has come. And both of those, baptism and the the temptation in the wilderness, is showing something new has arrived. And it's arrived in Jesus. 
And that entry into his kingdom comes through repentance or the turning toward his kingdom, to turn away from the kingdoms of this world, turning away from being our own God, our own king, to now turning toward him and his kingdom. So Jesus comes to teach us what it means to be part of this new kingdom through this manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If you were to summarize the context and the content of Jesus' sermon, one could essentially say that this sermon is about how Christians are called, really, to be completely countercultural to the kingdoms that rule of the day, in in today. And though we might be citizens of various earthly cultures and kingdoms and nations, if you remember the words of Paul in Philippians 3, for the Christian, Christians have a citizenship that is not ultimately in the kingdoms of this world, but that ultimately is in the kingdom of God. And so as a result, commitments to that kingdom, the kingdom of God, at times will require Christians to be counter to the cultures and the kingdoms that we find here. Because ultimately, true blessing, and this is where we're going to start to shift toward Jesus' words, true blessing is found only in this kingdom that Jesus came to usher in. Now, the final piece of uh, context that I want to give before we dive into what Jesus actually says is I want to note that term blessing. The reason being is uh, the Greek word for blessing, it can also mean happiness. And I think that's important just to note that there's this kind of dual understanding of the word because this sermon shows what, li- what the life of the Christian ought to be by showing us what true happiness really looks like. Happiness that's only found in the kingdom of Jesus. Okay, so pin that in your mind for a moment. With all that context, let's take a look now at what Jesus has actually said about his kingdom and what it actually means to experience blessing and happiness in that kingdom by considering the pathway to blessing, a pathway to happiness. Let's hear again the words of Jesus in verse 5. He says this, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up uh, on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, we just said that to be blessed, to be blessed, uh, could also mean to be happy. So if you kind of put your mind in that place, what is Jesus talking about when he says, happy are the poor in spirit? Happy are those who mourn? Because that seems to run completely counter to our conceptions of happiness and blessing. So what exactly could he mean? Well, let's try to understand the two ideas that he's put forth. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And what does it mean to mourn? Well, in the Bible, let's first look at poor in spirit. In the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, you see time and time again the poor being privileged, acknowledged, and lifted up by God. The reason being is not that poverty in and of itself is necessarily some kind of virtue, meaning being uh, poor or having nothing doesn't necessarily make us good people, nor does having much, having riches, necessarily make us evil people. However, the poor are often the most willing to trust God. As many of us know, the poor often have no security 
except in God. And so poverty came to be connected to one's spiritual state because the likelihood uh, that one would be, uh, have a humble dependence on God was often connected to their economic state. The poor and the vulnerable palpably feel their inability to save themselves. Whereas the rich are more willing to embrace the momentary pleasures and powers associated with their wealth, deceiving themselves into believing that they can save themselves. It was the case in Jesus' day, and it's absolutely the case for us today. Riches can be very deceptive. And so, right from the get-go, Jesus is upending our conceptions of power and security and salvation by saying, the happy life, the blessed life, the life of those in the kingdom is marked by a posture of being poor, knowing that God alone can satisfy. The kingdom of God is not for those who come with their hands full, but for those who come empty-handed, seeking to possess only that which God can give. In Luke 18, and the, the, also in, there's a, um, Matthew also has this account of uh, the rich young ruler, remember that story. If you know the story, you'll remember that Jesus comes across a man of great means, great wealth, who also claimed that he uh, had followed the law of God ever since he was young. And so what you have here is you have this moral man who's also very wealthy. But when he comes to Jesus, he asks Jesus how he can experience eternal life. If you remember what Jesus' response is, it was jarring. Jesus says to the rich young ruler, go sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Now again, he was very wealthy. And while he was willing to follow many of the commands of the law, getting rid of his possessions was a bridge too far, and so it says that he went away sad. Now what is that? I mean, can you really essentially buy your way into eternal life? course not. This interaction with the rich young ruler is deeply connected to what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The rich young ruler had his hands filled with all of his morality and all of his success. His hands were full. And so when Jesus says, none of that matters, nothing that you have in your possession matters, your morality or your riches, none of it matters. Instead, come with empty hands. And you, rich young ruler, need to sell everything if you're gonna be able to come with empty hands. When this man heard this, he felt sad and he went away. You cannot come to God with your hands full of moral achievements or personal exaltation or a reliance on worldly pleasures or uh, possessions or status. We must come to God with empty hands. Again, John Stott puts it this way, that the kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children who humble themselves enough to accept it, not soldiers who boast that they can obtain by their own prowess. So if that's true, my question would be, what do you have in your hands? Assuming that you, based on what you have in your hands, will find some favor before God. You know, are you a hard worker? Are you moral? Are you successful? Are you a good spouse or a good parent or a pursuer of justice? What, what is it that you have in your hand that you think, if you bring it to God, will bring you some kind of favor before him? 
You know, if God were to ask, why should I let you into my kingdom? How would you answer that question? If your hands are not empty as you answer that question, then you don't have the kingdom. Let me also say that some, when they read this passage, overly extrapolate Jesus' statements about the poor here. Meaning Jesus is uh, making a claim about our, our spiritual state before God, not necessarily a physical one, right? Poverty is not necessarily a virtue, and it's not necessarily wrong to have riches. However, even though this is a spiritual thing that Jesus is talking about, there are also some who deny the extent to which this passage also leads us to see the poor the way that Jesus saw the poor and the vulnerable. Meaning, lest we overly spiritualize this idea of being poor in spirit, we need to also remember that Jesus literally advocated and was concerned about the poor. Now we're going to talk about more, this more in the series, but to be the king's people, reflecting the king's character, we too need to fix our eyes on caring for the poor and the vulnerable among us, just as Jesus did. We can pin that one for down the line. So not only does Jesus call us, does Jesus say, blessed are the poor, or, I'm sorry, the poor in spirit, yes. Uh, but the other thing that Jesus says is, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Right? He shifts from being, uh, talking about being poor in spirit to now talking about mourning, which is quite the contradiction, again, if you remember what we said about the word blessed. He's basically saying, happy are those who are unhappy. Yet this is not really what he's, of course, getting at. God is not interested in us just being unhappy to be unhappy for no real reason. To understand this idea, we need to consider what Jesus has already said. What is Jesus talking about? What is the context of this sermon? Remember, the context of the sermon is Jesus is calling people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And so this morning that we're seeing here is not a general sorrow or a general sadness. God is not interested in you being sad. Rather, this mourning is a sadness that comes when we recognize our sin, and in particular, our sin that has made us an enemy of God's kingdom. When we have rejected God's kingdom, we are at odds with his kingdom, and so this mourning is about that which has put us at odds with God's kingdom, that we ought to mourn that sin, that rejection of him. I mean, after one realizes how spiritually poor and bankrupt they are before God, that there really is nothing that we can offer God, that ought to then lead to some kind of mourning. And it is only those who recognize their sinful states and the extent to which they've rejected the kingdom of God, that they then can be welcomed into that kingdom, to acknowledge our position before God, that we have not obeyed the king. You know, in, this, in the same chapter in, uh, in Luke 18, where we see Jesus uh, talking to the rich young ruler, he also tells a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know that story. Uh, this past week, I'm, I'm reading through the story, and I don't, there's like a few passages in Scripture that when I read them, they just immediately get to me, and I find myself weeping every time. And this is one of those passages. If you remember the story, in the story, the Pharisee, who's this religious man, is uh, praying in the temple alongside a tax collector. Now the tax collector, a man likely known as a swindler and a thief, both of these two men, this morally righteous Pharisee 
and this thief of a tax collector are both in the temple praying. The Pharisee, he was a proud and arrogant man, and so he prays to God, listing all of his moral accomplishments. And at the end, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like this tax collector. I am righteous. But then Jesus fixes, takes our eyes off the Pharisee and onto the tax collector, and he says, but the tax collector, standing off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I get choked up again. Jesus concludes, who's justified? It's not the one who exalts himself, but it's the one who humbles himself. See, the, the, the tax collector, he was, he was poor in spirit. He recognized he had nothing to offer God. He knew he had nothing worthy of God. He had nothing but his sin in his hands. His hands were empty, but with that sin. But he also didn't come just with these empty hands. He, he stood off afar, it says, meaning that he was so full of shame for his sin. It says that he beat his breast, that he was devastated by his sin. And so he cries out to God for mercy because of this sin. And Jesus says it's that man who went home justified. It was that man who was made righteous. Why? Because the Pharisee didn't need comfort. The Pharisee had comforted himself with his own arrogance. But the man grieved by his sin, he was comforted with the love and the mercy of God because he recognized the extent to which he had nothing to offer. And so my question to you would be, do you have that posture? Because if you don't come with humility, recognizing the depths of your sin, sin being the rejection of God's will and his desire for us, then we don't have the kingdom. Because that means that we are comforting ourselves with whatever we still have in our hands. We have not truly realized our position before God, nor humbled ourselves before him. See, the, the pathway to blessing, to happiness, to the kingdom of God comes through our poverty. It comes through our empty hands. It comes from humility. It comes from mourning our sinful condition. Because in the end, this posture recognizes that we will never find full satisfaction in the things that we pursue in this life. We desire in this life meaning and purpose and fulfillment and joy and all of these things only come as we look to the Lord and the Lord alone. You know, St. Augustine, he famously in his confessions put it this way. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And isn't that exactly what Jesus is talking about here? To be able to find who we are in him alone, to trust in him alone. Our rest, our comfort come from the one who desires to comfort us. Which leads me to my final point, is that Jesus, he's not only the one that's proclaiming these things to us, He's not just charting for us the pathway to blessing, but rather he's also presenting us 
the fulfillment of the blessing. That fulfillment being himself. Let me just say a few words about that fulfillment. Earlier, I referenced the rich young ruler who desired heaven. He wanted to know what he needed to do to get there. And in the end, Jesus basically says, you can't have the heavenly treasure if you're going to so desperately cling to your earthly treasure and so go sell your possessions. And for many, that's just a crazy idea. I want you just to hear that God is not asking us to sell all that we have. Rather, like, right, just like the rich young ruler, he seeks to confront the way. God seeks to confront the ways that we avoid him through whatever means, through our accomplishments, through our pride. God will always confront that which is taking our eyes off of him. It's his grace and his mercy that causes him to do that. So we also, like the rich young ruler, need to come with empty hands. And so I asked you the question earlier, if God were to ask you why he should allow you into his kingdom, what would your answer be? What would you offer him? The rich young ruler still had his riches in his hands. This is what he was assuming was going to in some way merit his favor. He had his morality in his hands, thinking that was in some way going to merit his favor. What do you have in your hands? Because the answer to the question, if God were to ask you, why should I let you in? The answer to the question is actually a pretty simple one. The motivation to give up everything is a pretty simple one. When we have empty hands, that means that we are then able to receive a gift, a gift that then becomes a fulfillment of these blessings. I mean, Jesus Christ is not just a preacher on a mountain. He's also the one who is the gift. He is also the one who is the fulfillment of this blessing. Letting go of the treasures of this world gives us room to receive Jesus, the treasure of heaven. When asked, why should we, why would God let us into his kingdom? The simple answer is, I have no reason but Jesus. I have nothing but Jesus. Jesus is the gift that makes our cup overflow with abundance. Jesus is the gift that comforts and restores the sorrowful and the humble. Jesus is the one who makes the poor rich and causes the mourn to rejoice. Why? Because Jesus is the embodiment of all that he preaches in this sermon. I mean, do you remember that hymn, that song that's found in Philippians 2? There's this, there's this uh, poem, this hymn in Philippians 2 that some have argued was really the first widely sung song of the early church. And that hymn says this, that Jesus, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Do you see how Jesus embodied poverty and humility in that song that's described? Jesus, he didn't give up earthly treasures. Instead, Jesus gave up heavenly splendor and he stepped into our poverty. The king becomes a servant. The eternal one took on flesh and died on a cross. For us, so often we struggle with the proposition of giving up earthly riches in exchange for heavenly ones. But Jesus, he gave up heavenly riches to take on our poverty. That's a whole different kind of thing. And why does he do it? He does it for our sake. 
He does it so that he could then go to the cross for our sake, to identify with our sorrow, to take, upon, take it upon himself, the, the consequences of our sin, the consequences of, of our rebellion and rejection of the kingdom. I mean, why would we not want to then, when we think about what Jesus has done, why we would, why we would not want to then do the same to reflect him? Why would we want to add anything? Why would we not want to come with empty hands so that we can have him fully? Why, like the Pharisee, would, do we want to be proud or arrogant? Why would we not want to be like the tax collector, humble, contrite, so that our, hands might, our heads might be lifted and our hands might be filled with Jesus, that we might be restored and redeemed? I've said all this before, but the reason important to note this, the reason why we can give ourselves fully to Jesus is that he has proven himself trustworthy to give our lives. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, all of these things are flowing from his grace and his mercy and his love for you. And as a result, we can trust his words when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We can trust that it's true because Jesus, our King, he shows how he embodied these very truths. And so my call to you, friends, would come to God with empty hands. Receive Christ fully as this gift. Mourn the ways that we have not trusted in God's kingdom and be comforted by the one who came to comfort those who mourn. Let's look to Jesus, our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you see us in our poverty. Lord, though we might think we have things of great value, in the end we have nothing. Nothing that really ultimately matters. God, we thank you that even though too often we are not uh, devastated by our sin, though we don't mourn our sin, you, you by your grace, show us the ways that we have not trusted in your kingdom, that we might then be comforted as we mourn. God, I, I thank you that you see us in these states, and out of love, you come to us. You send your son, who embodies all of this fully, who gives up heavenly riches for our poverty, who takes the consequence of our sin upon himself on the cross. And so God, as we look upon him, would you lead us to lay down whatever it is that we attempt to bring before you, to bring, to, to have favor before you, and instead, would you help us by your spirit to receive fully the gift of Jesus? Would you help us to mourn our sin, realizing the ways that we have rejected you, that we might be comforted by our Savior? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.